Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. You know, of all the moments and the events and the celebrations that come and go over the course of a year, there's, there's something special, I think, about Christmas Eve, at least something that stands out in my mind. And maybe it's that moment of rest after the, the sense of completion of all the preparations that have gone into the last month or three. Maybe it's the anticipation of tomorrow morning. Maybe it's that combination of joy as we sing together tonight and that sense of kind of peaceful calm that comes from standing up here past my bedtime. But I think above all those things, the thing that stands out about Christmas Eve is that it's a chance in the midst of all that goes on in this time of year to remember why we're here and what it's all about. So I want to take just a few minutes tonight to read from God's Word where God reminds us of what happened on that first Christmas and why it was so important that it has become the focal point of the calendar all around the world. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And if you'd like to use the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, you can turn to page 807. I want to read from Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Very familiar words to us. This is what God's Word says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray briefly. God, how we thank you for your word. Would you use it in our hearts to show us more about Jesus tonight? We pray it in his name. Amen. You know, Christmas is full of planning, isn't it? We plan, we plan gifts. We plan events. We plan our weekend we plan meals, we plan trips, and invariably something goes wrong. Sometimes things go wrong because we make mistakes. You know, maybe, maybe your power goes out and you wake up late and you're, you're running late for your flight to Paris and you accidentally count your neighbor kid instead of your son and you end up leaving your son home alone to fight off the burglars for a few days. Maybe, maybe you and you and your daughter-in-law get the same gift for your grandchild and, and your grandchild opens your daughter-in-law's first. And there's nothing worse than being so excited to give a present and find out that person opens the same thing from someone else first. 
Other events go wrong just because of things out of your control. A snowstorm hits and messes up your plans. Or this year, maybe your family is like my family and a number of extended family have gotten COVID and it's really changed all of our plans for, for next week. Well, invariably, things go wrong and we find out pretty quickly that our control over things is pretty flimsy. In fact, there probably aren't many of us that go any Christmas where everything goes exactly as we anticipated it in every way. But that wasn't the case for the first Christmas. And the first Christmas, Matthew 1 makes very clear one thing. Everything God had been saying and planning for thousands of years was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's the main point of this chapter. Everything God had been doing and saying for thousands of years was perfectly fulfilled by the birth of Jesus that first Christmas night in Bethlehem. And I want to take just a a few minutes to see how Matthew 1 shows us how Jesus fulfills God's plans, God's promises, and God's purpose. So let's start by looking at how Jesus fulfills God's plans. And if you have your Bibles open still, I actually want to start by looking at those verses that come before what we read tonight. The verses before what we read tonight are those verses where we find a genealogy. Now, I realize that we often skim over these genealogies. I was talking with my son, he's 10, recently, and we were talking about his devotions and where he'd been reading in the Bible, and he said, you know, I I don't really like reading genealogies. I said, well, I can sympathize with that, but the genealogies are important Because they trace God's plans through history. And the genealogies demonstrate for us that the story of Scripture, the story of Jesus, is not a myth. It's not something that was just made up or brought to light at some point. Real people and real marriages, despite real sin, led to a real baby in an actual manger, built by a carpenter, filled with real straw that was intended as bedding for a real cow. And that baby was swaddled just like we swaddle our babies, or at least for some of us we try, in a real city in Israel sometime around 4 BC. And nothing across thousands of years could get in the way of God's plan. I mean, just trace, if you, if you were to read through this genealogy, and I'll just highlight a few names for us, but if you look at a few of them, it starts with Abraham, Abraham the father of Isaac. Now Abraham and Sarah seemed to be a sticking point right at the very beginning. God's promise was all about children and descendants to Abraham and Sarah was barren and they had no child. But that didn't provide a sticking point for God's plans. He gave barren Sarah a son, Isaac, who became the grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel. Wicked sin could also not stop God's plan. We find out as we trace through this genealogy that even wicked sexual sins of Judah against Tamar and David against Bathsheba not only do not jeopardize God's plan, but God actually redeems them as Tamar's son and Bathsheba's son become part of the family of Jesus. Foreigners who were enemies of God's people couldn't stop God's plan as Rahab and Ruth are brought to faith And God and their sons become part of the line of Christ. Israel is split asunder by the folly and wickedness of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But that doesn't mess with God's plan. He keeps tracing his line through David's sons on the throne of Judah. 
Israel's conquered and exiled from their land because of their idolatry. But no, no matter, God preserves a royal line from father to son through exile right down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, whose firstborn son would stand in the legal line to the throne of Israel. Now, I've planned and led a number of youth retreats, and I know that I can't even get two days to go exactly as we'd planned. You know, the trailer gets a flat tire on the way home, or we have to make three trips to the ER for stitches and asthma and a wrist, or the stomach bug breaks out mid-retreat. Now, these things happen, and the list could go on. And obviously, if you were Joseph at the beginning of this story, it sure seems like his plans were wrecked too. Surely Joseph, who loved Mary deeply, thought that everything had gone wrong when she showed up pregnant. Surely he sensed betrayal and heartbreak. Except that this was exactly what God had planned. And he shows up in a dream to tell Joseph that this is going exactly according to his plans. And here is God crossing thousands of years through the lives of hundreds of his people with every piece falling into perfect place to fulfill his plans through that baby that was born in Bethlehem. Now that's a God and a Savior that we can trust with the details of our lives. If he can span thousands of years and work every detail out, he can care for us as well. Of course, God had been telling his people all along that he had a plan, and he had made specific promises all through those years to his people. And so the second thing we can see from our passage tonight is how Jesus fulfills God's promises. In fact, the genealogy actually helps us with that too. God had promised that a descendant of Abraham would be the key to blessing all the nations. And he promised that David would have one of his sons to sit on the throne forever. And through the prophet Isaiah, God had promised that this coming Messiah would be a branch from the stump of Jesse, David's father. And through Haggai, God had promised Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, that the Lord had chosen him as a signet ring to be established on the great day of the Lord. And if you read through this genealogy, you'll find that Jesus was a son of Abraham, a son of David through Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. So that when he is born, he fulfills all of these promises that God had made over the courses of the centuries. Of course, in the passage we read tonight, if you look at verse 23, you'll find that Jesus also fulfilled a very specific promise. He was born to Mary when she was still a virgin. Now that's something that's unheard of. It seems like an impossible miracle. And yet we're reminded in verse 23 that even this miracle was a fulfillment of a specific promise that God had made to his people. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah came to King Ahaz, king of Judah, and he told Ahaz, Ahaz, I know that it looks like your throne is in a precarious place and you might get overrun by enemies. But ask of the Lord any sign you would like. And he will demonstrate to you his faithfulness. Now Ahaz, either in disinterest or unbelief, refused to ask for a sign. But God declared that he was going to give a sign anyways. He was going to give a sign that would definitively prove God's faithfulness to his people and would definitively show that God was fulfilling all of the promises he had made. And the definitive sign, Isaiah says, 
is that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and that son's name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, if you trace discussions about the Bible at all, you might know that this verse is a favorite punching bag of those who would question God's word. They say, well, Matthew's really stretching the truth here. The word just means a young girl. It doesn't really mean a virgin. He's kind of stretching things to to pull this together, but that's not the case at all. See, it's true there is a different word in Hebrew that refers more directly to an unmarried woman, but that word is used of widows and others. It wouldn't have fit here at all. This is the only word that in Hebrew that could have been used of a young girl who was not married. In fact, every time it's used all throughout the Hebrew Bible, it always refers to a young maiden, and it's never used for a girl who's married. It's a word for a virgin. Which is why 200 years before Jesus was born, before anyone knew what this verse was referring to, the Jews translated this verse into Greek and used the Greek word that always means a virgin. See, 700 years before Jesus showed up, God promised something that seemed impossible, that had never happened in history and seemed like it couldn't happen in history. God's people must have been asking, what does this sign mean? How in the world is God going to fulfill this? Well, just hold on, because God always fulfills his promises. And we find out here in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus, the Son of God, come to dwell with us, is born to Mary before she was married to Joseph by the power of the Holy Spirit as a perfect fulfillment of God's promises. So here is God fulfilling all of his plans perfectly and fulfilling all of his promises to his people. But there's a third thing that we find out in this passage, and that is that Jesus fulfilled God's purpose. And this may be the most important. Now, what exactly is God's purpose for the world? I don't ask that as a rhetorical question. It's an important question. And there's some dispute these days over what God's purpose and intentions are for his people. And it's, it's essential that we get the answer to that question right. I think when we think of God's purpose, we need to clarify God's purpose is not to make the world a better place. God's purpose is not to keep his people from suffering. In fact, in the short term, Jesus promised that his people would suffer, perhaps even more, not less, in this world as they sought to follow Christ. God's purpose was also not to meet whatever we feel our needs are. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to provide the ultimate therapy for us to get us from anxiety and disappointment to health and happiness, or to get us enough of the world's goods to meet our expectations. Christ is what we need in all of these things, but they are not his chief purpose. No, from the very first chapters of the Bible, God was perfectly clear. When we disobey God's word, starting with Adam and Eve, that self-determination and that rebellion against God was sin. And that sin and rebellion against God introduced all evil, suffering, and death to mankind. And such sin deserves God's just wrath and punishment. Now the only way to hope for any human being from any of these things is to strike at the root of the problem by overcoming sin and saving us from the punishment that we deserve. And it just so happens that right there in the beginning of the Bible, In Genesis chapter 3, God promised Adam and Eve that he would one day do just that through one of his descendants. 
He would send one of their descendants to crush the head of Satan and to crush the power of sin over his people. Ephesians chapter 1 actually takes us even further back, declaring that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace." So from before the foundation of the world, all through the pages of history, God had one purpose, a purpose through the ages to save his people, forgiving their sins and reconciling them to himself, to the glory of his name. And of course, that's exactly what we so desperately need. Now, the well-known Christian author from the 19th century, G.K. Chesterton, famously said that sin is the one scientifically provable doctrine of Christianity. Anyone can look around us and within us and see sin quite clearly. In fact, you don't even have to know the Bible to know that something's wrong with the world and that we need something to fix it that we can't provide. And many of you know that I was a Latin major. It's a very popular choice these days. At Hillsdale College, and as a Latin major at Hillsdale College, I was... Delighted to read a beautiful little article this week by a classics professor at my alma mater. And he drew attention to a Roman poet named Catullus. And Catullus was writing in Latin 50 years before Jesus was born. And he wrote that at one time, heaven or the gods and men dwelt together. But then he wrote these words in his poem. I'll, well, he, he wrote them in Latin. I'll read the English translation. He wrote, earth was stained with crime unspeakable. And all evicted justice from their greedy thoughts. Our evil madness by confounding fair with foul has turned away from us the gods' forgiving thoughts. Wherefore, they neither deign to visit such meetings nor suffer themselves to be touched by light of day or eye. Catullus knew something was wrong and he knew it had to do with our sin and our wickedness and our greediness. Catullus was on the right track. Because our sin, evil, and wickedness have separated men from heaven. But that's where Catullus' poem ends. There's no solution. And as far as Catullus knew, there was no solution. Which is why it is so very significant that in our passage in Matthew chapter 1, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and declares, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And there's a 19th century commentator, J.C. Ryle, and he wrote so beautifully these words. He said, he saves his people from their sins. This is Jesus' special office. He saves them from the guilt of their sin, washing them in his own atoning blood. He saves them from the dominion of sin by putting in their hearts the sanctifying spirit. He saves them from the presence of sin eventually when he takes them out of this world to rest with him in eternity. And one day he will save them from all the consequences of sin when he shall give them a glorious body at last and end death forever on the last day. Blessed and holy are Christ's people. From suffering and cross and conflict, we are not saved. But we are saved from sin forevermore. That is salvation. And you know, I would 
wager that if we are honest with ourselves and if we know the depth of our own sin and our own selfishness and our own news, then there could be no better news than these words that the angel gave to Mary that first and Joseph that first Christmas. It's no wonder that the angel announced to the shepherds good news of great joy for all people. The forgiveness of sins, God's purpose, the one thing we need, are brought to fruition in this baby. It's no wonder that the hymn writer could write of Jesus, whose very name means the Lord saves, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary. Tis rest. That's the joy of Christmas. And so here we are on Christmas Eve, on another year. Once again on the verge of a Christmas morning. But once again, we're not just celebrating the birth of a sweet little baby who showed up a few thousand years ago. We're celebrating a baby who was the culmination of all of God's plans from the foundation of the world. The fulfillment of all God's promises that he made to his people as he arrived to to fulfill God's purpose to save his people from their sins. And so as we come to the end tonight, as we go towards Christmas morning, let me suggest just three brief thoughts for how this should change us on yet another Christmas. First, all this should lead us to worship Jesus with joy. You know, every year the same words roll off our tongues. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But those shouldn't just be words that roll off our tongues. That is reality. See, joy isn't just an internal feeling. Joy is our response to something overwhelmingly good. Maybe some of you tomorrow morning are going to open up the Christmas present you always dreamed of. That present that's at the top of your list. And if you get the thing you never dreamed you'd get, you're likely going to respond with a lot of joy. That's the response we generally choose to give when we get something better than we'd hoped. But in Christ, we've received a gift that is unimaginable. God with us, the forgiveness of our sins. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus and who he was and what he came to do, we should worship him who is worthy with hearts full of joy. That's the first thing we should do. Second, all this should also lead us to find great comfort in Jesus. You know, I don't know each one of you. I don't know what suffering or grief or hardship you might be facing this Christmas. But we know that sin has resulted in suffering and grief and hardship because we are separated from God. But we read in these verses that Jesus arrived to announce that God is with us once again. And what could bring us greater peace to our hearts, comfort and difficulty, calm and anxiety, hope and despair, a settled, unthreatened rest? What could bring that more than the presence of God who with, is with us, who has returned to us and has given us the security in him through Jesus Christ. That is true, peace and comfort. Which brings us finally to say that I think all of this should force each and every one of us tonight to decide what we will do with this baby Savior in the manger. You know, it's not enough to have fond thoughts of him 
or to believe that the story happened. The question is, will we repent of our sin and living lives for ourselves? And will we come and put our full faith and trust and hope in him and in his life that he lived for us and in his death that he died for us that we might be saved? If you choose not to put that faith and trust in him, Christmas is still a nice time to hang out with family and maybe get some good cookies, but it's not much more than that. But if we do choose to put our faith and our trust in him, then we can fully experience the joy of Christmas and understand why it is that Christmas has become the focal point of a calendar all around the world as that baby in the manger fulfilled all God's plans and all of his promises and all of his great purpose that he should save his people. We pray it in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.